All right. So my name is David. I'm one of the R3s in ENT. I've had the pleasure of working with all of you. And uh, thank you for having me here today. The topic of the discussion today is going to be deep neck space infections. Objectives include looking a little bit at the epidemiology, diagnosis, and risk factors. Specifically, you guys should look for in the ER on sick patients who, you do, who uh, require a lot more care. Brief uh, overview on the anatomy with respect to the cervical fascial lines, deep neck spaces, and imaging. I like putting imaging and anatomy together. Airway management, something you guys deal with in the ER regularly. Microbiology and empiric antibiotic coverage. You guys dish out a lot of antibiotics as well. And the therapeutic management, once you guys send them over to us, what we end up doing or not doing. And then the complications that uh, we have sick patients who come in pretty advanced disease. You guys probably have seen several of these already. So with respect to the epidemiology of deep neck space abscesses, in the antibiotic era, things have changed. There's an emergence of community-acquired antibiotic resistance, such as MRSA, that we have to keep in mind. Before, that wasn't an issue up until 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago. A relative increase in the number of deep neck infections from an odontogenic source as opposed to a pharyngotonsillar source. Uh, antibiotics have completely uh, changed tonsillitis. However, antibiotics don't change low socioeconomic <laughs> status and they don't change poor high dental hygiene. There's also the emergence of more immunosuppressed patients. We have an epidemic with diabetes, and now we have, uh, and UCI is a transplant center, so we see a fair amount of transplant patients as well who are uh, effectively immunosuppressed. And in addition, uh, complications with respect to uh, deep neck infections can lead up to a 40% risk of mortality. Although we've come a long way with antibiotics, complications can still be very costly. With respect to the diagnosis, you want to know recent events that may lead up to it are, as always, upper respiratory infections, which include ear infections, sinus infections, throat infections, history of dental caries or any dental instrumentation. Did they recently have any dental work done? Do they have a history of IV drug abuse? Is there a history of recent head and neck trauma? Or any upper airway surgery or even intubation can lead to a, uh, that went badly can lead to deep neck space infections. Symptoms and signs that patients uh, typ typically come in with are pain, neck swelling, painful swallowing, fever, difficulty swallowing, inability to open their mouth, voice changes, drooling, <laughs> the hot potato voice, <laughs> or ear pain, and shortness of breath. You guys will be working with kids. We see a fair number of these, at least two or three a week at chalk, and you'll probably see these if you work at institutions where you see pedi pediatric patients as well. They typically present with fever, neck mass, neck stiffness is very big, poor oral intake, they tend to drool more than usual, and lymphadenopathy. Specifically for children under nine months, the big three are neck mass or swelling, lymphadenopathy, and fever. Other things that they present with are rhinorrhea, poor oral intake, and cough as well. Here's a study by Daramola in 2009 looking at 106 patients who had abscesses. 
So the definition of a deep neck infection could be cellulitis, it could be phlegmon, or it could be abscess. This one specifically looked at abscesses. The uh, prevalence, uh, the most highest incidence occurs within the third and sixth uh, decades of life. Overall, the most uh, predominant uh, source of the infection is odontogenic, and a lot of them are basically unknown, or the infection has gone away, but the uh, pathogen has already spread. Head and neck cancer, throat, throat infections is pretty low on the list now. Trauma, IV drug use. Post-operative infection, scrofula, TB, we still have TB around, you can't forget that in your differential. And uh, fewer uncles, mostly MRSA. Uh, most common presenting uh, symptoms include head and neck pain, difficulty swallowing, and tooth pain. Signs include neck swelling and fever as the most uh, two common findings. Here this looks, uh, there's another study from 2010 from Italy coming with 233 patients who had deep neck in infections who were admitted who had phlegmon and abscess. The most prevalent signs were neck swelling, fever, and trismus. Now let's look at the comorbidities that are associated with this. The highest one is hypertension. Second on the list is diabetes. And then third is heart disease. Other things to keep in mind are chronic hepatic disease as well as autoimmune dysfunction as well. So specifically looking at diabetes uh, as one of the major risk factors, other immunodeficient uh, states include HIV, liver disease, collagen vascular disease, hematologic malignancies, recent chemo or long-term steroid use or transplant medications that effectively immunosuppress as well. This is a study that looks specifically at diabetes. Uh, comes from Taiwan. In Taiwan, the diabetic rate is 4%. However, the admission rate among patients who got admitted for deep neck infections is 30%. So it's almost an eight-fold increase in your likelihood of getting admitted as, uh, with a patient with uh, diabetes compared to the general population. Diabetic patients are very important to keep in mind. Their hospitalization stay is almost twice as long. At, they form abscesses, and of the ones that form abscesses, about 86% of them need to be surgically drained. Only 65% of patients who develop abscesses ended up getting uh, drained. And there's a fourfold increase in the complication rate as well. There's a difference in the prevalent microbacterial organisms as well. Strep viridans, which comes in teeth and, orpher and orpharyngeal flora, is number one among non-diabetics, uh, correlating well with the tooth odontogenic theory. And then Klebsiella pneumonia is the most important one. And this also has been noted in UTIs as well. Uh, among diabetic patients. A little bit on anatomy, the uh, neck has two divisions of cervical fascia. This is the superficial cervical fascia. Um, this envelopes the platysma muscle above here and the muscles of facial expression. It spans all the way up from the zygoma at the cheekbone all the way down to the axilla in your armpit, to the clavicle, to the deltopectoral region. It houses adipose tissue, sensory nerves, and superficial vessels. Typically, patients present with cellulitis, with rubor, redness, calor, warmth, dolor, pain, and edema. Uh, abscesses, however, demonstrate fluctuants. Uh, ultrasound is a great technique to look for fluid. Uh, this actually is considered a superficial infection. Therefore, if you see something in the ER and you feel comfortable doing it, feel free to do it because it's not a deep neck space one. If, it's a, if, you, if on the CT scan, 
you see that it's above the layer of the platysma, don't worry about it, it shouldn't be an issue, and you could pack it if you want. Just keep in mind, you want to do it among these Langer's lines of uh, <coughs> relaxed, relaxed in tension lines, so you get good uh, wound uh, uh, closure afterwards without scarring. So the more important part of the deep cervical fascia, you have three layers. You have the superficial layer, you have the middle layer, and the deep layer. These envelope the contents of the head and neck, and they form 11 potential deep neck spaces. But in the interest of time, we will focus on the more important ones, both clinically and epidemiologically in terms of numbers. So the superficial layer of the deep cervical fascia starts, poster oh, starts posteriorly here at the spinous processes, wraps around the trapezius muscles, the SCMs, and comes midline. At midline, um, it attaches to the sternum, hyoid, and mandible. This is at the level of C5. It also envelopes the anterior belly of the digastric and the masseter muscle, which is involved in mastication. So if you have inflammation there, they'll have trismus. Submandibular gland and the parotid glands are also enveloped with this. It is responsible for making the parotid and masticator space. It's also important in that it creates the submandibular, the floor of the submandibular space, which we'll talk about. Uh, at length later. It also is involved in the lateral aspect of the carotid sheath. The middle layer of the deep cervical fascia is involved, has divided into two parts, the muscular division, which is uh, the infrahyoid strap muscles, which are right here, uh, connecting the sternothyroid, sternothyroid and thyrohyoid muscles. And then you have a visceral division, this is very important because it encloses the trachea, the larynx, the pharynx, the esophagus, the thyroid gland. It extends from the uh, pharyngeal constrictors at the hyoid bone down to the anterior mediastinum overlying <coughs> the fibrous pericardium. That is the buccopharyngeal fascia. It's the anterior wall of the retropharyngeal space that we'll talk about. It extends from skull base down to the level of T2 at the pericardium. pericardium. And if you have infection, you have, you're at a high risk of getting it into the chest because of this. It also contributes to the anteromedial aspect of the carotid sheath. The importance of the carotid sheath is that if you get an infection in any of these sites, it gets into the carotid sheath, you could have trouble. The deep layer of the cervical fascia originates also at the vertebral spinous process posteriorly. It flips underneath the trapezius and it attaches to the longus coli muscles here. It's divided into two parts, the alar fascia and the prevertebral fascia. So the three spaces that are, uh, the three uh, spaces that these two contribute to are the retropharyngeal space, the danger space, and the prevertebral fascia, uh, prevertebral space <coughs> as well. So the buccopharyngeal fascia is right here that we talked about, which is part of the middle layer of the deep. The area in between it is a virtual area called the retropharyngeal space, which goes down to T2. Followed by that, you have the alar fascia, which is the posterior wall, but it also serves as the anterior wall of the danger space. It's called the danger space because you're in trouble as it goes down to the level of the uh, diaphragm. And then you have your prevertebral fascia, one layer behind that. You have your, the body of the, vertebra, the vertebral body here, a very small dead space there. Uh, which extends all the way down to, co to the coccyx. So if you get an infection there, a spinous infection, osteopots, anything, 
it's uh, bound to travel all the way down if you wait too long. So the deep neck spaces, the uh, focal point ends up being the hyoid bone in the throat because all the strong fascial attachments attach to the hyoid bone and it ends up becoming an anatomical uh, landmark for you to put all the other spaces. We're going to talk of great note regarding the above the hyoid, you have the peritonsil, which we'll talk about, the submandibular and the peripharyngeal, these are your big three. You also have the masticator, temporal, the buccal, parotid spaces. Below the hyoid, you have the anterior, visceral, and pretracheal area. And those that span the entire neck are the danger spaces, which include the retropharyngeal space, the danger space number four, the, and the prevertebral space, and the carotid space, which, in, which uh, encases the carotid sheath and its uh, contents, which include the carotid artery, the jugular vein, the vagus nerve, cranial nerve nine, etc. Let's start with the peritonsillar space. This is something you guys deal with on a regular basis. Um, I'm sure you guys handle most of these by yourselves in the ER. We get called whenever there's a question mark. Uh, it's, the most it's the most common site of deep neck infections. It's an area filled with connective tissue between the capsule and the superior constrictor muscles. The superior constrictor muscles are up there behind and your uh, peritonsillar area is right here. This is the anterior pillar, this is the posterior, posterior pillar behind it. So if you're going to be draining a PTA, where you want to aim is right here, along the border of the tonsil. Not all the way up here, unless you see a bulge. So this isn't really called a deep space of the neck, but anatomically it's contiguous with other places in the neck, the peripharyngeal space and the retropharyngeal space, and you could have a lot of uh, uh, sequelae if you get stuff in there as well. So peritonsillar abscess, there's a spectrum that goes from pharyngitis to tonsillitis to phlegmon, then to abscess. Uh, peritonsillar abscess is a clinical diagnosis. The two big things that we look at, we see a lot of these in the peds uh, population at chalk. The two big things you want to look for is trismus, trismus, trismus. And trismus is defined as unable to open the mouth more than 2.5 <coughs> centimeters. It could be painful. The pain is due to peripharyngeal uh, involvement near the masticator muscles and, and they have pain. There's inflammation there. They present with drooling. That's also very, very important. If they can no longer deal with their secretions, they probably have a peritonsillar abscess. Fever, sore throat, muffled hot potato voice, and cervical lymphadenopathy. That's also big. Signs include tonsillar edema, visible exudate, and a bulge superior of the pole. So that's important here. It's at the superior aspect, and that's where you usually aim. There's a deviation of the uvula away from the side because it's pushing away that tissue. Here is a CT scan showing pharyngitis. Here you have some mild stranding of soft tissue there. Here you have tonsillitis, and then you have a nice peritonsillar abscess sitting there. So we'll talk about what abscesses are. In short, necrotic-filled necrotic cavity, um, rim-enhancing, hypodensity hypo hypo in the center. So with respect to peritonsillar abscess, I thought this might be helpful to you guys. This is an evidence-based review of peritonsillar abscess care. This came from England where they have access to very large medical records because of their health system. Relevant recommendations are that steroids aid recovery and improve symptom relief. 
They actually believe that penicillin and metronidazole is an effective combination in 98 to 99%. As ENTs, we like clindamycin here at UCI. Um, there's no convincing evidence in favor of either aspiration or incision and drainage. However, incision and drainage may resolve the pain faster than aspiration. So if you guys can't aspirate it, then we're unlikely to find it either. Routine pus cultures are not recommended in peritonsillar abscess, and this is because one, they're expensive, two, they're not going to alter your management, and three, unless you, unless, um, you are going to go follow, follow it up, there's no reason to do it. Exceptions include patients who have persistent infections or recurrence, or if they're immune compromised, like patients who have diabetes or uh, any other hematologic malignancy. Other recommendations, CT and MRI should be reserved for diagnosing spread beyond the peritonsillar space, like in the peripharyngeal space. So if they're complaining of really bad neck pain, or their trismus is really bad that they can't even open their mouth, then CT scan is not a bad idea. Um, intraoral ultrasound, though, something that you guys push, is, has a sensitivity of 89 to 95%, and a specificity between 80 to 100%. And it should be, and it could be used in the setting to confirm your diagnosis, expedite the drainage in terms of targeting where you're going to make your incision, and uh, discharge a patient home if you think they don't have it. One thing that we look at, if the white count's above 20, there's an abscess. Um, on, if you guys get a CT scan and it's less than a centimeter, we're unlikely to find it. And if we do find it, the antibiotics and the steroids will take care of it either way. At Kaiser, actually... Um, Peritonsillar abscesses are empirically treated with, with clindamycin, one shot of IV in the ER. They get a 10 of Decadron, and they get a Decadron taper with antibiotics, and they get sent home, home with follow-up with ENT in a week. If they don't do well, within the next two, three days, 48 hours, they come back to clinic, and then we drain them. That's very rare. But it does happen. Um, should, and it could be done in an outpatient setting. That's another thing that they found. However, inpatient management, if they're severely septic, they're severely dehydrated. There was a lawsuit where they sent out a patient who couldn't take his pills because they had so much pain. The patient got uh, Lemire's disease and died. So they got sued because of that. And uh, they lost because the, always make sure the patient is able to take the pill before you send them out. Um, airway compromise or age greater than 40. So here we have a peritonsillar abscess with uh, air and gas, anaerobic bacteria, and it's tracking down into the peripharyngeal space and down to the hyoid. So this has been sitting around and lingering for a while. It's spread into the peripharyngeal space laterally, and that is uh, in continuity down to the hyoid, as we'll see. Next, the peripharyngeal space is an inverted pyramid. It starts up here at the sphenoid at the skull base, and it extends all the way down to the hyoid. This is the medial aspect. This is inside the mouth. So you have your tonsil, you have your uh, soft palate, and your superior constrictors. Laterally, you have the mandible, you have the deep lobe of the parotid. The peripharyngeal space is divided into two parts. You have the prestyloid compartment, which is mostly in the mouth, and it has uh, access to the maxillary artery, maxillary nerve, and adipose tissue and the post-styloid, which is on the other side of the styloid, which has more neurovascular stuff, such as 
the carotid artery, the internal jugular vein, cervical sympathetic chain, cranial nerves uh, 9 through 12. So depending on the location of where you have your infection, you're going to have different presentation. The parapharyngeal space is, neighbor, is basically the hub for all deep neck space infections, starting from the peritonsillar area, it connects to the submandibular uh, area below it, the retropharyngeal space medial to it, the parotid space lateral to it, and the masticator space lateral to it. So this is your uh, hub for, uh, for all the other uh, deep neck spaces. Sources of infection include pharyngitis, tonsillitis, upper respiratory stuff, mastoiditis, parotitis from the parotid gland, uh, cervical lymphadenitis, as well as odontogenic infections as well. So if a patient comes in with symptoms significant for fever, chills, neck pain, neck pain, neck pain, that's big, trismus, trismus, these are the big two for peripheral space. And they have, this is, this is the key. If the tonsil, if, the, if it's sticking inward and medial, anterior and medial, then it's likely a, the tonsil is sticking up but it's not red, then you have an infection deep in the pre-styloid area. If it's in the post-styloid area, they typically do not present with any pain or trismus or obvious swelling. However, they may present with severe septicemia with possible Lemire's as it's close to the internal jugular vein. They, other complications include carotid artery aneurysm or rupture if you sit on this. They present with a Horner syndrome or cranial nerve palsies uh, as well. Because the peripharyngeal space is in continuity down to the hyoid, there's a possibility of laryngeal edema, edema with imminent uh, airway compromise as well if you sit on this for too long. And then they present with a hot potato voice as well. This is a peritonsillar abscess that is now in the peripharyngeal space, pre-styloid. This is in the post-styloid area. The way they know that it's post-styloid is you see the fat is being pushed uh, anteriorly over here. No, sorry, here. What am I saying? Anteriorly here. Here's your abscess, and uh, it's being pushed anteriorly. The fat, uh, like the fat over here, is not as dense, and it's being pushed anteriorly. Next, we talk about the submandibular space. It encompasses uh, the real estate from the mucosal floor of mouth down to the hyoid. So it encompasses a very big, important area as well. Most of these infectious are odontogenic and teeth. So anytime you have a broken tooth um, or really bad tooth decay, keep, put them on antibiotics because your oral cavity is in continuity with this space here and this space is in continuity with the uh, submandibular space. So the submandibular space is divided into two components based on this mylohyoid line. This is the attachment of the mylohyoid muscle, which is the floor of the mouth one of the floor of mouth muscles. So it all, the location for your infection is going to be based on which tooth it is. If the tooth is anterior to the mylohyoid line like these, it's going to end up in this pocket. This pocket is the sublingual space because it's blocked out here. If, it, if it's the second or third posteriorly, the molars, then it's going to drop down and fall in the uh, submandibular area in the neck, also called the submaxillary space. And they'll present very differently. However, these two areas are in continuity also posteriorly, so you could have infectious spread go backwards and come out. Posterior to that, it's also in continuity with the peripharyngeal space as well. So as we were talking about, the sublingual space infection ends up in the floor of mouth, between the floor of mouth and the mylohyoid. 
So this, uh, this is the mylohyoid muscle. So if you have a tooth, you have a break here, bacteria comes in here, you get this periapical abscess, it ruptures the pulp, it erodes through the bone, and it goes underneath into the sublingual area. This usually happens at the mandibular premolar and the first molar, or anything medial to that. It's a characteristic of marked intraoral swelling of the floor of mouth. If you have bilateral incidence of this, then the tongue will elevate and swallowing will be difficult. This is not full on Ludwig's, we'll go over Ludwig's as well. Next we have the submandibular space infection. So looking here, this is the mylohyoid line. If your tooth is, uh, root is below the mylohyoid muscle, then it's going to go down into the neck area over here. This typically occurs with the second and third molar. Uh, these result in swelling of the neck starting here and moving down medially and inferiorly towards the hyoid bone. Because of all the space here, typically they show up later because there's so much space there. You, uh, that's the delayed presentation. Here you could already see that it's beginning to point and your drainage is going to be different as well. One would be intraoral if it's sublingual and one would be here and we would like to do this uh, because it's, this is like real deep neck space and you would make a small little nick there and drain it and it will demonstrate that as well. So here is a sublingual uh, infection here. It's near the parasymphysis right here. This is uh, alveolar uh, in the lingual aspect of the mandible. This is a sublingual. Here we have a sialo uh, sialolith here that's blocking the submandibular gland which is outside the mylohyoid line. So this would be submandibular, this would be sublingual, but they're both in the submandibular space. That's what makes it confusing. As you can see, this is calcified, so therefore it lights up like bone. Next we'll talk about Ludwig's angina, which is one of the most devastating possible complications or presentations of a submandibular um, infection. It's a clinical diagnosis uh, found in the 1600s with a rapidly spreading firm, indurated, it's typically called woody or brawny because it's hard and it's brown. Gangrenous, it's a cellulitis of the floor of mouth that involves both submandibular compartments, both the sublingual and that submandibular. It does not have an abscess and it's not associated with lymphadenopathy and it results in rapid upper airway obstruction. This brawny, so basically they asphyxiate and die. Here's a CT scan that shows marked cellulitis and the swelling here. You don't see any uh, lucencies, unfortunately, here. So clinical diagnosis, this is a s imaging. So now the signs, severe trismus. They come in with drooling, uh, dysphagia, can't speak. Then they get nervous when they realize, oh, I can't breathe. And they start, sh they start breathing quickly and they feel short of breath and they go into a panic. Best thing you could do for them is try to calm them down. The treatment of choice is going to be airway, airway, airway is always first. Uh, fiber optic nasotracheal intubation is probably the best thing to do. And if that doesn't work, you, get them to the, you try to get them to the um, uh, OR to be in a controlled setting and do it fiber optically. Uh, have you guys done these in the OER as well or no? Are you guys typically, have you, how frequently do you guys see these? No, no, no. Good words. Okay. I haven't seen any the last three years. I've seen four people that got flown in for quote unquote blood waves. But didn't have it. it yeah. yeah. 
That's I always get excited. Yeah. Because <laughs> I want to see it. So treatment is wide-spectrum antibiotics, surgical decompression. The first thing you guys can do is start them on antibiotics immediately, put them on the Decadron, and that usually helps. Uh, surgical tracheotomy is left when you fail faber-optic nasotracheal intubation and you have the trach tray open in the ED, in the OR. Less common causes other than teeth include peritonsil or peripharyngeal space abscesses, which come posteriorly, anteriorly into the submandibular space, epiglottitis, and penetrating floor of mouth injuries, which result in significant edema immediately. This is something brief on the buccal space in the cheek. It's the area between the buccinator muscle and the cheek here. This is also odontogenic in nature. It starts here. It contains buccal fat, parotid duct, and the facial artery. Uh, usually it's odontogenic in nature. I, I just thought this was a cool picture. So this is a kid with a red swollen cheek. Uh, they present as warm, tender swelling within the cheek. Minimal systemic symptoms. Trismus sometimes, usually if it goes posteriorly and hits the masseteric muscles. Now let's uh, talk about retropharyngeal space abs uh, infections. So the retropharyngeal space is here in blue. It extends from the skull base at the sphenoid down to level of T2. Posterior to that, you have the danger space of the neck. That goes from the skull base as well down to the diaphragm. And then you have the uh, prevertebral space that extends from the skull base down to the coccyx. We're going to focus on retropharyngeal space because that, that is more of an infection. Usually it's a spine issue when it goes into the danger space and the um, uh, prevertebral spaces. Uh, it contains two chains of lymph nodes on both sides. Usually it's seen in childhood because these tend to regress with age. And they typically are associated with URIs in kids because it uh, attracts the drainage from the nose, sinus, and pharynx. Uh, it also can be caused due to trauma to the posterior pharynx. Either we operated on them doing a DL and it was a little bit more aggressive than it should have been or an intubation by anesthesia. Or it could be an extension from the peripharyngeal space that's lateral to it. That it, If it breaks through that fascial barrier, then it's home free and it gets into the uh, retropharyngeal space. So in PDA, and we see a lot of these in kids at chalk. Uh, these kids re refuse to move their head. And the way you examine them is they'll stand like this. If you walk around, their eyes will move, but the neck won't move, or, or they'll turn like this. And it takes three, four days for them to recover. Neck swelling is another finding. Fever, irritability, dysphagia, excessive drooling again, dyspnea, and strider. That's big. Adults present with neck pain, fever, malaise, anorexia, nasal obstruction, because it could go all the way up to the nasopharynx snoring or dyspnea as well. Physical examination is also in the oropharynx as well. It's a unilateral bulging of the posterior pharyngeal wall. If you see this, you could localize that retropharyngeal lymphadenitis and you could go in there and do an intraoral, we would do an intraoral uh, incision and drainage. Or it could be cellulitis. Uh, if your cellulitis, if it's cellulitic or an abscess, it could uh, extend all the way the length of the pharynx and it'll be difficult to tell whether it's just lymphadenitis or is this an abscess or cellulitis. Here are several pictures. Here is a retropharyngeal lymphadenitis. This is one discrete lymph node that looks like it's getting necrotic. If this thing keeps growing and growing and growing, you already see a little bit of stranding there and inflammation. If this thing pops, you have issues. Nice abscess formation there. 
Here's another one at different layer levels. You can see a little bit more. This is, uh, this is before it becomes an abscess. This is just cellulitis. And this is the level of the larynx, the hyoid, and the epiglottis. This is just cellulitis. There's no, here you see rim enhancement, and it's spread throughout. Here you don't have the rim enhancement. It's just a little bit of cellulitis and edema for now. Other things that could cause, as mentioned, is a foreign body. This guy swallowed a fish bone, big fish bone. And this lady swallowed a chicken bone here. And this is a good view because you have the sagittal view. And you could actually see the thickness here and the air fluid level extending down. Okay, good. Yeah. A couple of questions. Um, some people have, told, have heard before if you move the trachea, it'll cause pain. Like if you rock it back and forth, somebody with retropharyngeal abscess. You that or I haven't heard of that? tried that sign before, but it makes sense because the trachea is in that retropharyngeal. It's in ra it's the posterior <coughs> aspect of it. So I mean, can you use some of the um, like let's say you get a CT lateral? You could. Yeah, thing yeah. yeah. That actually, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think seven is one. Se if it's thicker than seven millimeters, you got an issue. We see a lot of this at chalk. Sometimes they overread it on the lateral neck X-ray. CT is probably better because you get contrast in there too. Airway management. So in deep neck, so now we move on to the airway management part of the talk. Uh, loss of the airway is the major cause of mortality from deep neck infections. Uh, the biggest culprit is the submandibular and floor of mouth. Others include the peripharyngeal space and the retropharyngeal space as well. Uh, independent risk factors for severe complications in submandibular space in, uh, infections include involvement of the visceral anterior space. That's the visceral compartment that we were talking about that encloses the trachea, the larynx, other and parts like that. So if it infiltrates that area, you're in trouble. Bilateral neck swelling or diabetes or other comorbidities. Diabetes just pops up everywhere with all infections and sepsis. Warning signs for impending airway uh, demise is going to be tachypnea with shallow breaths. They take a lot of breaths, but are very shallow. Orthopnea, meaning they can't lay flat. That's very big. Dyspnea, short of breath. Strider, noisy breathing. And this position here, where you see little kids who come in with, or previously when epiglottitis was important, was big, or kids with retropharyngeal abscesses with bad airways, they do this. They extend the neck out like a, like a dog in the sniffing position, like that. They extend out the neck, and they open up the airway patents. They maximize the patency of the airway. So don't move the patient from the ER before the airway is secure if you think something's going to go down. Obtain vascular access as well. First line treatment is uh, oxygen with cool mist, helium if their inlet is very small, intravenous steroids, and racemic epinebulizer. This requires a fiber optic evaluation. If you have any problems any time of the day where you feel someone's going in impending airway distress, give us a call. We should be there. And if anyone refuses to come in, call our residency director. <laughs> because this is why you're there. Fiber optic evaluation, if you have 50%, 50% is a cutoff. If they're, 50 if they're less than 50% obstructed, then they'll likely do well with medical management. If it's greater than 50% obstructed, you're going to have to perform an advanced airway maneuver, uh, usually an awake fiber optic nasotracheal intubation or an awake tracheotomy. 
routine, you, sometimes you don't have enough time and you guys do your best with the glide scope and more often, every time that I've been involved, you guys have already gotten there way by the time I got there. So routine uh, endotracheal intubation is suboptimal in this instance because of several things. Trismus, the patient's inability to open the mouth, distorted anatomy when you look in there, soft tissue immobility due to the edema, tissue friability, it's all falling apart and bloody, complete obstruction once you induce them, their airway collapses. The only thing keeping their airway patent is the muscle tone and them awake. With respect to the microbiology and empiric antibiotic usage, usually these are polymicrobial cultures, odontogenic in nature with both anaerobic and aerobic oropharyngeal flora. Sometimes you have your atypical findings like TB or cat scratch. The big aerobes you find are strep viridans, strep pneumonia, strep pyogenes, Neisseria species, H. flu and MRSA. Anaerobic ones are also, the anaerobic ones are the uh, oropharyngeal dental ones, Pepto-Streptococcus, uh, Pepto B. fragilis, Prevotella, Fusobacterium, and Iconella corrodens. This one's actually clindamycin um, uh, resistant. So we, uh, when we have patients who come in like this at chalk, we immediately put them on clinda and ceftriaxone. Um, outpatient, you could give augmentin or clinda. If you have, if you're suspecting nosocomial infection with Pseudomonas, MRSA, you could give them Zosin, Imipenem, Cipro, or Levofloxacin. MRSA, <coughs> clindamycin kills it. The reason why we throw uh, ceftriaxone on top of that is that the MSSA in the community here is resistant to clindamycin. So the ceftriaxone gives you coverage for that and gram-negative rods. And if you have, in the rare instance of a necrotizing fasciitis, you want to do triple coverage, you do ceftriaxone, clinda, and flagyl. These are all empiric. Once you get your culture and sensitivities, then you could switch. So therapeutic management. Should you do conservative care with medical management or surgical IND? The trend now, previously, and some still believe, you have an abscess, you go after it, you open it. Um, but uh, th those trends are changing now. It's like a pendulum. They swing back and forth. Now we're leaning. Most, a lot of stu uh, studies have shown that in a select group of patients, conservative care with antibiotics, steroids, and airway observation for 48 hours is sufficient. Um, those and we'll go over uh, who should be admitted and who should not be admitted. Other things that have changed our management is that imaging limitations, phlegmon versus abscess. Uh, an abscess is a drainable cavity of infected necrotic debris. The radiologic correlate is a fluid attenuated collection with peripheral rim enhancement. Uh, a phlegmon, though, is just inflamed infected tissue that hasn't uh, developed a necrotic core yet. This presents just with a low-density edema. The positive predictive value of cases of using this definition is between 70 and 80%. So you could technically be taking 3 out of 10 or 1 out of 5 patients to the OR for no reason. However, the negative predictive value, if it tells you that it's not there, then it's likely not there. And CT is the most valuable. So CT should be used uh, most valuably to exclude an abscess. This is where judgment comes in. Um, on surgical in intervention on when to do it. 
It's still the mainstay of complicated and severe deep neck infections. The indications include any, uh, any sign of airway compromise, if they appear in a critical condition, septicemia, if they have any of the complications associated with deep neck infections, if there's a possible descending infection or air fluid level in the neck, or if they fail to improve after 48 hours of antibiotics. If they're diabetic, you will take them to the OR. Uh, one thing recently is that if an abscess, one study showed 3.5 centimeters, this shows 3 centimeters. Uh, this, the, the article I read said 3, but if your abscess is greater than 3.5 centimeters, it should be drained. That's 100% uh, positive predictive value. In kids, our cutoff is 2 centimeters, so if something's less than 2 centimeters, it'll likely resolve with medical care. If it's greater than 2 centimeters and they don't look so sick and they're taking PO, then you could wait on them for 48 hours. If it's involving more than two of the spaces, let's say you have peritonsillar plus parapharyngeal plus submandibular, you have to take it out. If it's a big parapharyngeal, you go in and take it out as well. So you can take two approaches in uh, addressing them surgically. Intraorally, you could address the parapharyngeal or the peritonsillar because they're sticking out and it's easier, less morbidity than cutting their neck open. Uh, things you assess are for access. You have to open all the loculations. So if you're going to have a tough time opening up the loculations from the mouth, with a sm uh, then you'll go in through the neck. And plus or minus drains, we usually put in drains. There are new minimally invasive approaches. Let's say you have something deep in the post-styloid uh, area, then you could call, uh, we'll ask you to call IR or the medicine team, or we'll call IR, because the morbidity of going after that is higher uh, than them doing it. So. You could have a masseteric, uh, you could have a masseteric uh, abscess that goes up into the temporal area. You could do a small temporal cut underneath the hairline. You could, and then you have different. Over here is where you approach your submandibulars. Here are your submentals. Here is the peripharyngeal space. The peripharyngeal space comes all the way to the hyoid, so this is a good access point. Lateral neck, peripharyngeal space there. You could do the retropharyngeal space there as well because if you push all the way all the neck contents, the esophagus will be sticking in your way. You open it up and it'll drain. And then the carotid space right there because it's sitting right behind the SCM. So I'll show you a little video of what you guys hand over to us. Uh, Austin. Okay. Maybe just drag the video over onto the other all right, this is a little uh, promotional. Got it. This is a little promotional uh, video that we've come up with at UCI <laughs> to attract patients. Well, I'll explain. So here's your uh, <coughs> deep neck space infection. You draw a. You try to put your spot way below the mandible line because you have the facial nerve running here. You don't want to knock that out and give them a bad lip. Uh, paretic lip. Oh, it's very slow. <laughs> You're being careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So you prep the neck in the OR. This guy got intubated nasotracheally. So you make a little cut and you hit pay dirt immediately with this guy, from what I remember. Oh. <laughs>
favorite. Oh, yeah. Get a better view of that. Why did it stop? So you're breaking up the loculations with your finger, and then once you remove your finger, Oh, yeah. Trying to floss for it. Wait, there's more. I'm joking. Assumption is very well placed. Being sarcastic. That med student really wants to go into ENT. So then you irrigate it thoroughly with like a liter of whatever, three liters of normal saline. You use the suction to get it in there, and then you place a drain, and you're done. This guy used to come in for like two weeks for washouts. Yeah, this guy was a fun case. Yeah, you can see it's going through the... He's, he's got nasotracheal intubation. All right. So how do we go back on this thing? Got it. I got it. Where'd it go? How many views? 330,000 views. And on that note, okay. So let's talk about the complications. Mediastinitis is a relatively rare but very uh, dangerous complication, up to 40% mortality. Uh, it's spread along the retropharyngeal and uh, danger space and prevertebral planes from the neck down into the mediastinum. Presentation is diffuse neck edema, dyspnea, Pleuritic pain with breathing, t uh, tachycardia, and hypoxemia. So here's your abscess here up in the retropharyngeal space. You could see it down here near the great vessels infiltrating that area. It's going all the way through the, uh, down the spine here, and it's making its way all the way down to the level of the diaphragm. And therefore, this is a danger space infection. Um, treatment for this, so if it's below, so you could do it through the neck or you could crack the chest opener and put in chest tubes. If it's below the level of the superior, um, the superior mediastinum, then you have to crack the chest open and clean it out. Mortality is 60% if it goes that low and you just do it through the neck, but it drops down to 30%. It's twice as likely to survive if you go do both cervical and uh, transthoracic. Next complication is Lemire syndrome. This is a thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein. The uh, bug responsible is Fusobacterium necrophorum. That shows up on exams for us. Presentation, it typically follows pharyngitis. It's a 28-year-old kid comes in. He, he's had a sore throat and tonsillitis for two weeks. Went and saw a doctor, gave him penicillin, didn't help. He gets septic, he comes to the ER. He's actually a, uh, let's say he's a resident from New York, and he ends up in UCI septic with this. And he was 28, um, and he ended up on our service for like a week. So this guy actually started in the MICU, was in multi-organ dysfunction, survived that, and then uh, has to deal with this now. 
So you end up presenting with septic emboli with bilateral nodular opacifications, excuse me, infiltrates on CT, on X-ray, consistent with septic emboli. So it travels via the tonsillar vein to the internal jugular. It seeds there, releases an endotoxin that results in platelet aggregation and septic thrombi. First line treatment is to use a beta-lactamase resistant antibiotics. We use Zosin and we did not use heparin anticoagulation. He went home on long-term IV antibiotics for six weeks. He's not going back to New York. He's going to stick around here. He'll get a CT of the neck again in four weeks. Um, if it's still there, then we'll have to go in there and take out that internal jugular vein. That's occluded. So, um, All right. This is a carotid aneurysm slash blowout. That could occur as well. This is in the era of pre-antibiotics. And this is very, very rare now due to infection. It, it's due to a retropharyngeal slash parapharyngeal infection that has crossed that uh, carotid sheath that we've talked about that's being contributed by all different parts of the cervical fascia into <coughs> the carotid space. Hallmarks include a pulsatile neck mass, Horner syndrome, because this affects uh, the sympathetic chain, cranial nerve 9 through 12 palsy of any type, an expanding neck hematoma, or you see ecchymosis, or if you see bright red blood from the nose or mouth as a sentinel bleed in the setting of a very deep neck infection. What you have to do is take them to the OR and ligate that vessel or stent it. This is actually not the internal carotid. This is a posterior uh, vertebral artery that got infected as well. Last but not least, necrotizing fasciitis of the neck. We actually had a guy who had this like six months ago, 28. I don't know if he was immune compromised or not. He was not over 60. He did not have diabetes. And he said he didn't have HIV. I don't know if we ended up testing him or not. I got off the service. Um, it's usually an odontogenic uh, etiology with mixed flora. Clinical presentation. This is a very rapid progressive cellulitis. And you notice pitting with orange peel appearance because um, the lymphatics have gotten infiltrated. You may or may not find subcutaneous air, but when you feel subcutaneous air, you know it's there. It feels like Rice Krispies under your fingers. Treatment includes critical care, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and frequent uh, debridements. The first 